So we are in Matthew chapter 5, and I've been talking about this for a couple months now, letting you know that we are going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to a series in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, and maybe you're not even aware of what it is, but the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, well, a sermon that Jesus gave, and you'll never guess where, right? It was on a mountain somewhere. And so he gave a sermon, it was on a mountain, and this sermon has come over the years to be understood for right or wrong reasons, considered by many as the pinnacle of Christ's teaching. There are folks who you could go to who, who don't believe that Jesus is God, who don't believe he did anything important on a cross, if he even did exist and even did die, it was all for nothing. But they will look at these three chapters in the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is good teaching. This is many people's go-to source for quoting Jesus. And we're going to explore a lot of these passages that speak about things like us as Christians being salt and light about if you hate someone in your heart, it's like murdering them, actually. You don't actually have to go out and murder them with your hands. You just hate them. And that's where sin begins. He talks about things like going the second mile, like loving your enemies. This is where he gives the Lord's Prayer. This is where he talks about storing up treasures in heaven. This is where we talk about do not judge, and there's a whole paragraph about do not judge, and usually people look at you and just quote the first three words, do not judge, and don't take the rest of it into account. This is where we hear about the man who builds his house on the rock versus on the sand. There is a huge chunk of Christ's teaching here, and so many people look to it and say that this is the pinnacle of Christian teaching. Even though so often, unfortunately, the world takes this and wants to wrest it out of its context and make it something that it's not. Our goal and hope as we walk through this series is to understand exactly what Jesus was getting at, what his point and purpose was as he gave this sermon. This truly is a kingdom manifesto. And that, that word is even one that has been tied to other ideologies that uh, I personally am not very fond of, and so I even hesitate to say it, but I, I think it does explain well what, what we're getting at here, because it, is, it has the purpose and the aim of showing what God's kingdom is really about. See, God's kingdom has been talked about through the Old Testament, now coming into the New Testament. And he's finally saying, this is what it looks like to be living in my kingdom. Now, people throughout the years have actually taken this and, and gone in, in kind of weird, wonky directions with it. There was something back in the first half of the last century called the social gospel, and folks took the Sermon on the Mount and said, this is just how you should live. Everyone needs to live like this. And took no consideration of the fact that God needs to regenerate you to make you one who can and wants to live this out. Essentially, it was said, you just need to go be good to the poor, and that's it. We certainly should go and be good to the poor, but that's not all that there is. There are folks who hold to, and maybe you even do too, uh, what's called a, a dispensational theology, and essentially without going into all of that, we don't want to go into all of that this morning, but just to say that they look at this and they say, well, this is Christ's teaching for his what we'd call his inaugurated kingdom. Here's, here's all that means. I'm going to simplify it real simply. They said Jesus showed up. He said this is what the kingdom's going to look like, 
and things didn't quite go like they needed to. The kingdom's not quite here yet. Therefore, this is how we're supposed to live one day when Christ returns. When Christ comes and sets up his millennial kingdom. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. This is what it looks like to live in his kingdom here and now. So the theme of this entire sermon series is going to be about understanding life in the kingdom of God. A few questions to ask ourselves before we dive into the particular text of verse 3 is this. What is the kingdom? The kingdom of God, simply put, is where Christ reigns. Currently, he reigns in the hearts of his people. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21 say this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, see here or there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. God's kingdom exists among his people. Next question then is, who is part of that kingdom? Well, we've kind of already answered it. All of those who are in Christ are part of that kingdom. All those who have been blessed by God's spirit. All the people who the Beatitudes actually describe, we're going to go into this first section of the Beatitudes, And walk through it over the next couple months. And we're going to take one beatitude at a time. Because these are jam-packed with meaning. To help us understand that these are not saying, hey, be like this. But instead, God's people are like this. So those people who are in the kingdom are those who are in Christ. And they're going to be described and identified in these, what we call beatitudes, in verses 3 through 10. After that, we're going to see what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom. See, it says, this is who is in the kingdom, and now here's how you're supposed to live. Is everything really following the Beatitudes? Taking up there in verse 11, verse 13, on through the end of the sermon to say, if you're one of these people who are part of God's kingdom, therefore this is how you should live. It shows us the reality of the kingdom, and it gives us what we should aspire to. But it shows us what we can only get to with God's Spirit working within us. Only if the Spirit's working within us can we actually be ones who do all that this tells us to. And without God's Spirit, this is just an extension of the law, which serves without His help only to condemn. Boyce says this of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Show me a man who claims that he is living up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, And I will show you a man who either has never read it, does not understand what it's teaching, or is lying. So I want you to understand as we walk into the Sermon on the Mount over the next good number of months, this is showing us what it looks like to be living in God's kingdom, what we should aim to do in God's kingdom. We should understand that only by the Spirit's help can we even begin to do these things. So we aim for it, we want to do it, we long for it. But we understand that for us, it is something that is unattainable in its fullness. See, the kingdom of God is something that is both now and not yet. It is now here in our midst. But Christ is not, he reigns over all things, but he is not recognized as the king over all people. Now we live and we remain, as you remember probably from a month or two ago, from Galatians 5, we live in the flesh. And the flesh wars against the spirit. There is a now and not yet to what is happening in our hearts. So church, my prayer and hope is that for us, we will read this and say, wow, this is what it looks like for to be a citizen of the kingdom, and this is how we should live. And then we would look at this and say, I want to do this. By God's help, may I do this.
that is our hope and prayer, that we be a church who lives and aims for the Sermon on the Mount, knowing that only Christ can do that in us. Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3, and see what Jesus is talking about here in the first beatitude. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is God's inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word. Let's pray. Fathers, we consider your word this morning and what you have to say to us in it. May we understand that whenever we look at your Bible and your word, that it is, as verses 1 and 2 say, that your mouth is not verbally, physically speaking this, still your spirit is teaching us, teaching it to us and showing us what it is that you want us to do and think and believe and live. Lord, would you empower us to do that this morning? Would you give us that gift from your spirit called illumination? Would you illuminate these scriptures to us? To help us understand not only what it means, but what it means for us. What it means for how we should live and think and do in this world and in this church. Lord, would you help me as one proclaiming your word to do it rightly, to do your word justice, to not add anything of my own to it, and may you be glorified above all in what we do here this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Our main idea this morning is this. Only those who don't rely on themselves are part of the kingdom of God. Only those who don't rely on themselves are part of the kingdom of God. We're going to work through that this morning as we go through this text. And so normally, you know, we're, we're taking a few verses at a time, but we're really going to break this one verse of verse 3 into a few chunks. First of all, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those people. Now, because this is going to show up in the next few sermons, as you look down and see all the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and even 11, we're going to talk more and more and unpack this idea of what it means to be blessed by God. Essentially, though, we want you to understand that this means that those who are all of these things, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, those are the ones who are blessed. But so many of those things don't feel like blessings so often in our life, do they? They don't feel like things that are how are we blessed if we're poor in spirit? How are we blessed if we're mourning? How are we blessed if we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, wanting it to come, but it's not? How are we blessed, as verse 10 says, if we're persecuted? The idea of blessed has a lot of angles to it. We've talked about Psalm 1 in the past. We've talked about that idea of blessed is the man. I means one way to talk about it is just happy. If you are happy, but not that fleeting happiness, not the happiness that is momentary, but happy because you were favored by God. The idea we really want to focus in on is that blessed, when we say someone is blessed, they are favored by God. 
here's the thing. So many people talk about blessing and God blessing us as though we need to convince God. If I can just do this or do this or do this, God is convinced that he needs to bless me. Or if I proclaim it myself, and I, the, my words have power, and I'm going to proclaim a blessing over myself, or I'm going to proclaim a blessing over you, or some such stuff like that. But that's not what he's talking about here. It means that God is the one who has shown favor. And we know that God's favor that is shown is by his grace. Not by our own doing, but by his grace that he shows, as he favors us and shows us grace upon grace. It's not based on, on what we have done, but it's based on what he has made us. The people we're talking about here are those who are Christians. I'm going to sit up here this morning and talk to you about being poor in spirit. If you're here and you're not a Christian yet, I'm going to talk to you a little bit and, and a bit about the fact that you need to be poor in spirit. But here's the thing you need to understand. At the end of the day, we can't just will ourselves to be poor in spirit. God is doing that within us. This is a descriptor of the Christian. For you, if you're here and you're a Christian, you should be looking at this and saying, am I truly poor in spirit? Do I truly mourn in the way that he's going to talk about mourning? Am I truly humble? Do I truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? My hope and prayer is that you compare your life to these things and say, have I been blessed and favored by God that he has given me these things? It is what he has made us and what he is making us. So, blessed are, for today, the poor in spirit. And when we think about someone being poor in spirit, poor just means you're lacking something, right? You don't have any of something. Someone who is poor financially is lacking money. They don't have money. They don't have, they're not able to afford what they need. But he says you're poor in spirit. And for us, we usually think about someone who's poor in spirit as just miserable and pitiful, Right? Someone who's just down in the dumps, who is maybe sour all the time, maybe who just is just mopey. But that's not who he's talking about here. There's no way that that's what he's talking about. When we think and look at the bigger context, he's not saying that as long as you just are mopey all the time, that the kingdom of heaven is yours, because that's not the case. We usually think of this as merely proclaiming, I'm nothing. I'm not worth, or maybe we think of it as, I'm not worth anything. I don't have anything going for me. How could God love me? But that's not what it is either. See, being poor in spirit is actually the right application of realizing that we have a total inability. In and of ourselves, we have a total inability to do what we need to do to please God, to do what we need to do to make ourselves right with Him. As we sang this morning, my worth is not in what I own. A total inability to, by gathering things, to make God happy with us. A total inability to do anything. See, being poor in spirit is actually about being an emptying of ourselves. If you are poor in spirit, even that bit of you, your spirit, your soul, has been emptied of all pretense, emptied of all things that you think are going to give you some worth before God. And you say, all I can do is look to you, Jesus. We're going to see this is the beginning of it, and it's interesting because everything else is actually about filling God fills after this beatitude. But in this one, he talks about how we are emptied, being poor in spirit. It's a complete absence of pride and self-assurance and self-reliance. Here's what D.A. Carson says. Poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It's the conscious confession of unworthiness before God. As such, it is the deepest form of 
repentance. It's not a man's confession that he is ontologically insignificant or personally without virtue, for such would be untrue. It is rather a confession that he is sinful and rebellious and utterly without moral virtues adequate to commend himself to God. And we have to understand this, because this is different. There's so many things here, as we talk about this today, I want to I get laser-focused precision on what it means to be poor in spirit by, by pulling away all the other things that it's not. So sometimes we think it's just being miserable and pitiful. It's saying that I am worthless in a sense of your actual value before God. But here's the thing. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Every single human being has worth in that way. But every single human being is unworthy through our, the works and actions that we take to be right before God. So this is this necessary humbling that comes before any time that we can be exalted before him. And that's the thing is that God actually, through salvation, exalts us. He lifts us up. He actually adopts us into his family. And he says, listen, you were once an enemy of mine going against me completely. You wanted nothing to do with me. You would choose hell over me. But I've actually brought you into the family. When you put your trust in Christ, you are a son. You are a daughter. You have part in my inheritance. I'm afraid that there's some of us here today for whom this is a struggle. Maybe not a struggle, but it's an outright obstacle for you. You're like, well, I need Christ because I know that that's what I'm supposed to say. I'm supposed to say, yeah, I'm no good on my own, right? But for you, when you think about why you're actually commendable or not commendable to God, what comes to your mind isn't actually nothing, as it should be. What comes to your mind is a list of reasons why you're a pretty good person. For some of you, you think, well, I don't go out and party, if that's still something you know, people your age do, whatever age you be. I don't go out and I don't party, I don't get crazy, I don't abuse any kind of substances, I'm not drinking too much, or eating too much, or whatever. And you think, because I don't do those things, I'm good. And you've checked off your list, and you say, well, see, Maybe I am commendable before God. Or you're respectable and well-known in your community. Or even you're deeply entrenched in this church, and you have been for a long time, and so is your daddy and your daddy before them. And you think, because of these things, and you would never say this out loud to someone else, but somewhere in the back of your mind you think, this makes me commendable somehow before God. Or maybe you have all your ducks in a row, unlike all these other people, financially, maybe. Maybe your family has all its ducks in a row and, and, and there's nothing really, no, no big secrets, nothing you've had to cover up over the years, nothing that brings shame to you and your family. Maybe you have all this schooling and you feel like you really know something. Or you're from the right community and you're from the right side of the tracks and you have the right color skin and you were born in the right nation. You just think that you have your life together. And though you'd never say these things out loud, in the back of your mind, when you think about you before God. It's always just kind of there in the back. See, this person, though maybe they like the idea of God's law, because there's a few things in God's law they can check off. At the end of the, end of the day, they're not really concerned about keeping it. They create their own law and conform themselves to this law they've made. 
And instead of saying that Jesus said not to do this, not to do that, not to lie, not to murder, not to covet, all these things, you make your own law that says, make sure I give so much to the church. Make your own law that says, make sure I'm here every so many Sundays. And here, you, you should be here with God's people. If you make, a, you make your own law that says, make sure I get the right education, all my kids get the right education. You make your own law that says, make sure that I'm well known in the community. You create your own law and conform yourself to it. And you say, I've done all right for myself. And really, at the end of the day, Jesus is only good not for giving you every single bit of your worth and commendability before God, but he's good for filling in the gaps. What so many of us don't realize or we can't admit that every single bit of these things that I've said this morning and for years, whatever it is, fill in the blank. For me, it would be knowing things theologically and biblically. And I take pride in that and make my own law that says, well, you know how you really got your stuff together is you know a lot of things. I can tell you where to find it in the Bible. I can tell you where to find it in the theology book. And we forget what the prophet Isaiah says, that all of it is as filthy rags that do nothing for us before God except for disgust him. That we should do good works before God, at the end of the day, they do nothing to make us right before him. Nothing. They never have. They never will. I want us to consider this morning the fact, actually before that I want you to think about this, that maybe because of all those things, you're not actually poor in spirit, but actually you believe that you're rich in yourself. Instead of being poor in spirit and saying, I can't do anything on my own, I cannot make myself right before God on my own, you believe you're rich in yourself and in what you can do and what you have done and in your resume, or whatever it is. But I hope that we'll consider Paul in Philippians chapter 3, and hear what he has to say. Because I'll tell you what, if you, if you think that you have your religious ducks in a row, understand that Paul has you beat, like you were just whooped by him. I want you to hear for him. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, Paul says. So hear this. He gives his spiritual resume. If anyone else thinks that he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. He was out and killing Christians because he thought it was the right thing to do. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. We can take this and just move it right over to today. So he was circumcised on the eighth day. He had parents who took care of him and made sure he had what he needed. He was from the right country, the nation of Israel. He was from the right community, the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, he was a Pharisee. Every single box that he could check, he did. Regarding zeal, he was about it. He was so zealous for his faith 
that he killed those who he felt like were perverting it, which were the Christians. And regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. Now, it could very well be that Paul is speaking in hyperbole, because if we look at Jesus' teaching in, in the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to see, just because we don't do it with our hands, just because it doesn't happen outside the body, doesn't mean we haven't sinned in that way, right? He says, you think you haven't committed adultery, but you've lusted, and that's committing adultery. So maybe Paul is speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking kind of above and beyond. Or maybe he can really say, I did everything I could possible to keep the law on the outside. I was blameless. But look at what he says. Everything that was gained to me, I have considered it to be a loss because of Christ. Everything that made people look at me and say, look how much he has himself together. Look at the car he drives. Look at the house they live in. Look at the family they come from. Look how many plaques they have. Look how many, look how many uh, kids they have who have made it to adulthood and, and are, have a college education. All of those things that can be counted as gain in this world, in this community, and in this church is a loss. And Why? Because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss. Everything. Everything that is good about me is a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So much of that makes us rely on ourselves and not Him. But the knowledge of Christ outweighs all of those things. Because in him, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung. You didn't know we could talk about that in church, did you? But we're quoting Paul here. Feces, excrement. Number two. Every single good thing that he ever did, that he could say, check, 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 to make him look good in his community, did nothing for him. Do you understand that? So many of us have things that we are holding on to, and we say, please just think of me as a good person in my community. I can't lose this thing. If people find out what my child is into, what my grown adult child is into, I'll be so shamed. If people find out that I don't have all the money that, I think, that they think I have, I'll be so shamed. If people find out that I struggle with this sin, that I'm not going to someone to disciple me and get help for it, I'll be so shamed. And you don't understand that those things you're holding on to are feces. And why would you ever hold on to that? Just think about it. It's kind of gross. Why would you hold on to that? I suffered the loss of all those things because I considered them as that, that refuse, that excrement, dung. I said, I don't want to touch this anymore. I don't want to cling to it. I don't want to hold on to it anymore because it's no good for me so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, whether it be God's law or the law that you have made yourself, that you feel good about keeping. But one that is, in, that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that is based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings because, or being conformed to his death assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. This is a picture of one who is poor in spirit, who has every single reason to have pride, 
considering himself rich in spirit, to say, look how great I am. And he says, it is nothing but excrement to me. We have to realize that everything that we hope will commend ourselves before people and before God is loss. We must have a poverty of spirit. And understand that your best attributes and your best things in your column are actually your worst because they would keep you from relying on Jesus. Because when you rely on those things, you're not relying on him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, finally, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is a way of talking about the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom that's not of this world. It's a kingdom that has a king unlike any other king. And here's the thing. You don't enter this kingdom by walking up to the border and saying, hey, look, I can do so much for this kingdom. I have these skills. I can do so much for you. Listen, you want me in your kingdom, okay? You come into this kingdom by humbly submitting yourself to the king. Because imagine if there was actually a kingdom and a a person who wants to be a citizen comes in and so arrogantly thinks that they know everything. They say, I'm going to come into this kingdom and rely on myself and live under my law, live under my rule. That king who is going to be their king, if they make it into that kingdom, what is he going to say to them? He would have no reason to bring them in. They have no intention of submitting to him and his rule. If you want the benefits of the kingdom, you must submit yourself to the ways of that king. You must see that king as your provider of safety and protection. You must see the good, the, the, the good of that kingdom as a whole greater than the good of yourself as an individual. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. If you want the kingdom of heaven... If you want to know if you're in the kingdom of heaven, know and understand that it only happens for those who are poor in spirit. For those who have said, I can't do anything on my own. I can't be my own little king. I need someone else. To the believer this morning, the one who is sitting here and is a follower of Jesus, understand that when you simply throw out, well, you know, of course I'm not perfect. No one's perfect but in your heart you're kind of hoping and setting yourself up as perfect. Or you say, well, I know I'm just a sinner, but really on the inside you know there's things you're trying to do to make God be pleased with you. Understand that's not poverty of spirit. And those who are in God's kingdom will have a poverty of spirit. And so if those things are clashing and not meshing together, it should concern you. We can speak these lines all day long and try to tip our hat to God, but I beg of you to really and truly reflect on yourself and your heart and to ask yourself and to ask God, do I truly believe that I'm unworthy? Do I really actually believe that I can do nothing on my own to please God? Or do I think that I can be worthy if I do all of these things and lastly say, but, but, but I'm unworthy. But look at all this stuff I've done, God. But really and truly at the end of the day, I'm unworthy. I beg of you to ask God to help you become poor in spirit. Please, become poor in spirit. Don't become like these old monastic orders where these monks would go and shut themselves up and not eat food and abuse their bodies. We think that that's actually thinking less of ourselves, but at the end of the day, it's making you think more of yourself. 
Because when you do things like that, all you do is say, well, you're constantly thinking, I'm just so hungry. I'm just in so much pain that I've inflicted on myself. Don't be like these folks who go and try to put things away, try to put away all the comforts in a bid to help you please God. You're only making more of yourself. It gave them, it gives you more things to boast in. Instead, what we should do is to look to the Lord, to see the richness of him and his character, the richness of Christ in his spirit, to read his word and to be confronted with the fact that Jesus is perfect and holy and for us we will never, ever be able to do anything to commend ourselves to him. I ask you that you would pray and seek God and be confronted with this holiness. And that for him, you could do the only thing you can do, which is to ask him to save you, to repent and believe the gospel, to be poor in spirit and say, I cannot do this on my own. I need Christ's righteousness given to me. I need his sacrifice on the cross applied to me.